friends to the tomb of ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Hello, Tomb Believers. This is Trey Lawson, and you're listening to Tomb of Ideas, and I'm here with James, and uh, today is sort of a sad day here in the Tomb. Yep. We're pouring one out for Big Bernardo, guys. Yeah. Carol Spinney and Renee Aubergemois, um, two wonderful performers, masters of their craft, and, and we lost both of them on the same day. Yep, they were recording. Yep. Um, and, of course, Carol Spinney was the puppeteer, cartoonist, uh, artist, who portrayed both Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch for, on Sesame Street from 1969 until 2018. Yep. And uh, um was a very talented character actor, performer um who probably best known for star trek deep space nine where he played odo the shape-shifting constable of the station um but he was in all sorts of movies tv shows he narrated audiobooks he was in a bunch of robert altman movies he did broadway musicals straight plays all kinds of stuff um and incredibly talented and compelling in everything he did also funnily enough just from from the history point standpoint um i found out when i was taking napoleonic wars he's actually descended from one of napoleon's marshals which is a a cool thing to me his mother was a princess yeah that that's that's wild yeah and you know he he, his mother was a princess and he's best known for playing a shape-shifting alien it's just yeah, but if you're not a Trekkie, um, he was Father Mulcahy in the movie version of M.A.S.H. He was uh, the French chef that chases Sebastian in The Little Mermaid. Um, he, gosh, what else did he do? Um, he was on Boston Legal for a while. Um, in terms of voice work, he did all kinds of stuff with DC. Uh, he played Desaad. Uh, the villain in both Super Friends and in Justice League. Um, he was he had a bit part at the end of Batman Forever as uh, I, I think he's the the doctor at Arkham Asylum at the end. And I think you were telling me before we start recording, he does have a small Spider-Man connection as well. Yeah, yeah, this one's a weird one. Um, so uh, he was the voice of Peter Parker. On a 1972 LP uh, from a company called Buddha Records, uh, the title of the story was "From Beyond the Grave," and it's one of those sort of radio-style narrative things. Like it tells you the story through voice and sound effects, and in this case, rock and roll music from a group that are called the Web Spinners. Am I going mad? I'm scaling this wall just as easily as I can walk. I'm like some sort of giant insect, like a wall-crawling human. 
Spider! I raced back to my room. A few simple tests and I knew the answer. The spider bite had affected my blood. I had gained his powers. In the days that followed, I dreamed up my web shooter. With my spider power, I had superhuman aim and control. I could snare anything. Before long, I designed a costume. As I slipped my spider mask over my head for the first time, I remember the thrill that raced through my body. I only saw fame and fortune in my future. I felt free for the first time in my life. I turned towards the mirror, and Spider-Man was born. It's such a groove to be free. But uh, it's got characters like the Vulture, the Lizard, the Green Goblin, Kingpin. Uh, Doctor Strange makes an appearance for some reason. Uh, but uh, Aubergine Jean-Wah plays Peter Parker in that. And and it is... Uh, you can find it online. It, it's been out for enough decades now that I, I don't feel weird saying that you can find it online. Yeah, it's all on YouTube. Yeah, but by all accounts, both men were very sweet, loving people who uh, cared about their fans and the people who grew up with uh, the shows that they worked on. Um, Aubergine Wall was very active on Twitter, uh, and then later his team sort of handled it for him, but but he there were always pictures of him interacting with fans and, and sort of uh, carrying the flag for that era of Star Trek. And again, I think we've both discussed the fact that it's one of our favorite eras of Star Trek, and he's a big part of what made that show just so great. Yeah, like, I mean, in especially as an adult, looking back, and I've been doing a chronological, by air date, rewatch of all of Star Trek. Um, it's been kind of a years-long project, actually, at this point. Um, but... Deep Space Nine is by far my favorite Star Trek series, and a lot of that has to do with the character of Odo, who was my favorite on the show as a kid, and he remains one of my favorites. Yeah, he, I mean, he was obviously supposed to be like the Spock or Data analog for the show, but he was different. He, he, he was, he was, like, he was allowed to be emotional in a way that neither of them could. Right. Uh, so definitely Espe- and, that, and that's when that's also when it starts getting really good is when he starts expressing desires and sort of pride in his work and and he develops friendships among people and it, it i don't know it's just good <laughs> it is really good and and i had loads and loads of next generation toys as a kid but i only ever as far as i can remember i only had one deep space nine toy and it was an Odo action figure. Oh man, that's that's good. Uh, oh. He he his accessories. He came with a phaser and a bucket. <laughs> of course, he came with a bucket. Oh. <laughs> yep. But yeah. So rest in peace. Carol Spenny and Rene Aubergenois, love to their families, to their former co-workers, to everyone who knew them, because in some way, their performances touched all of us. Right. Let's pour one out. On to some, I don't know about cheerier, but definitely different news. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. It's time 
for Hellstrom Watch. All right, Trey. What is our news on the front of Marvel Television? Is Hellstrom still happening? Yes. All right. Thank you, Trey. But. (laughs) But. But. um, Feige has moved on and set his attention on other properties that we thought were safe. Right, the Disney animated stuff, right? Right. Uh, so, Dis- uh, Marvel and Hulu announced this uh, this collection of animated shows that were all going to tie together. Sort of like an animated comedy version of what Netflix did. Yeah. And so it was going to be Howard the Duck, Hitmonkey, Modoc, and Tigra and Dazzler. And those shows were all eventually going to cross together into a miniseries called The Offenders. Yeah, I know the Howard the Duck thing was going to be done by Kevin Smith. I didn't know about Tiger and Dazzler, to be honest with you. It was the one that got the least attention, but yep. apparently was pretty far along because it had a showrunner and a full writing staff and several scripts were already done. And as of this past week... It is on hold. The showrunner has left. The writing staff has left. Uh, there's basically nobody working on it anymore. It's not canceled. They say they are still doing it. But everyone who was working on it is no longer working on it. Yeah. Uh, of any of the shows, I think... I figured Howard Duck was safe because as Kevin Smith. Right. And I think Hitmonkey is safe because no one cares about Hitmonkey. Hitmonkey is fun. I actually like Hitmonkey. Oh, no, I'm not saying Hitmonkey isn't fun, but they can get away with doing a little cartoon about on Hulu about Hitmonkey and not affecting the MCU at all. Right, right. And and I, on the one hand, I really want the MODOK thing to happen, but on the other hand, I desperately want a weird live-action MODOK. Yeah, that would be nice. Um... Uh... So that production looks like it's in trouble. Yeah, yeah. And and again, I I guess it could still happen because it's part of this planned crossover thing. Mhm. But it it certainly has hit a major setback. Yeah. That you know getting getting your entire creative gutted is kind of a setback. Yeah. Uh but on cheerier uh, Marvel Cinematic News, we did get a trailer for Black Widow last week. Yes, yes, and that looks fun. It looks like a lot of fun. Like, more fun than I expected a movie of Russian spies trained from childhood to be. Right, right. And it's got some nice connections to the comics version of her story. So we've got Red Guardian showing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got... Uh, Yelena Belova, uh, Black Widow 2. Yep. We have Taskmaster, although I'm not crazy about his mask. Yeah, the, the, some people have been making the Power Rangers comparison. Yeah, he, he's got a little bit of, of Green Goblin syndrome there. Yeah, and I'm hoping that's just a that's a stage costume. Mm-hmm. Like it's a stage of his development, costume development. Right, right. That That he'll go through several looks over the course of the movie. Yeah, which which happens. It does, it does. I mean, 
we saw that with the Wonder Woman trailer, where she's going to end up with that gold armor at some point. Yeah. I'm, I guess that's okay. <laughs> it's I, from I, the comics. It's it's from Alex Ross. Let's be honest here. Sure, sure. It, it, it's Alex Ross design things are weird. They are. They they all seem to, they they all yell hi. I was designed by Alex Ross. And they're not, always shiny. Not so much to say like you know a George Perez designed costume. Right, right. Where it's like hi, I was designed by I was designed by George Perez. But you, you could definitely tell when something was designed by Alex Ross. Right, right. He, he goes for minimalist, but he goes for shiny, and he goes for lots of black. Yes. And just to tell a quick story, my dad is not a fan of Alex Ross at all. Oh, really? Yeah, no. Um, mainly because he says that Alex Ross's Batman and Superman look like used car salesman <laughs> playing dress up <laughs> they look like you know um a little bit of a bulkier version of don draper from Mad yeah Man. yeah well he like superman his superman basically looks like if george reeves kept playing superman into the late 50s yeah i could see that like so. like if that if that last relaunch of that series had happened before he died that's mm-hmm. sort of what he would have looked like you know the suit he doesn't look quite as as super as he used to yeah but anyway, that that's a whole other thing. But yeah, my my dad always grumbles whenever Alex Ross art gets used for stuff. I, I've kind of gotten over it at this point. I mean, I understand his point. There was a certain point where Alex Ross art got overused. Yeah, I and I thought like the concept art he did for the Spider Man movies was great. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I wish they had used more of it in their designs because Alex Ross's design for the Green Goblin was awesome. I don't think I ever saw the uh, the Green Goblin design. I saw... Because his design was more like the comics, with an actual goblin mask. Okay, I saw the... I've seen the prop test. Yeah, yeah, but the, the in the, the concept art, what it looks like is that... Because uh, he has, like, the, the goblin glider and all that, but it looks like he's draped himself with... Like, he ripped off the, the, the curtains from... His, uh, like that that big sort of study that he would stand in and, and talk to himself in. Okay, I remember that. Um, so instead of having like all the armor and stuff, like it was more of a, a homemade deal. Speaking of costumes, uh, also in the Black Widow uh, trailer, we got our first look at uh, Red Guardian. Yes, yes. Which is exciting. I never thought I would see a live-action version of that character. No. I always liked him because he's he's the Soviet version of Captain America. And he's always yep. been fun. He's also, And form, former Defender. Yep. Um, I believe he's also Natasha's first husband? Something like that. They they have a past in the comics, for sure. And I, th- yeah. I think it is. I think he was her husband in the comics. Um, so, yeah. That's fun. Um, he's, of course, played in the movie by David Harbour. Yes. Um, most famously known for playing Hooper on um, Stranger Things. For a second, I thought you were going to say Hellboy, and I was going to laugh. 
<laughs> also, of course, famous for um, living next door to my cousin at one point. <laughs> but my cousin-in-law. Like, okay. He, he bought it. He rented a house in her neighborhood when they were filming something at Pinewood Atlanta. Huh. And um, she's a huge fan, so he came over to her house, and she's the whole time was like, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> <laughs> but he he brings the right kind of energy to a post-Soviet version of that character. I think. Yeah, he also gives fat cosplayers something to do. <laughs> besides, this is true. besides Thor, right? There are gonna be so many of this guy at like Comic Con next year. I mean, big beard and a and a beer gut, so you know, and a belly. Yep. Let's be honest here. It's, he he's got a gut on him. <laughs> uh, not as impressive as mine, but he's definitely got it. Uh, but I th- I thought the fight I thought the fight scenes in the trailer looked fun. Yeah. Uh, I I dig the the active camo that Black Widow's suit has, where she can go from all black to all white, which is helpful when you're in Russia, where there's lots of snow. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all, no, that's da. da, there we go, da, da. <laughs> uh, any other Marvel live-action adaptation news we want to share? So this one is just rumor. Um, there, there's, there's no, there's no official confirmation on any of it. So grain of salt, everybody. But it is suggested that the upcoming Moon Knight series might also introduce everyone's favorite lycanthrope, Jack Russell. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this is definitely, like, very Tomb of Ideas related here, guys. So the rumor is that Jack Russell and company may be making an appearance in the upcoming Moon Knight series. And that also is going to help link to Blade and some other things, amping up, like, the Midnight Suns aspect of the MCU. Right. And so we have almost no details on this. It's still strictly rumor, but it's an exciting rumor. I hope it's true. Yeah, and we'll we'll come back to this later in the episode because we have received some cast suggestions right. from um, some of our listeners, which we're going to talk about in our uh, listener feedback segment. Uh, yeah. But we should... Anything else on the adaptation side of things? Um, not as far as movie TV. Uh, there is one new comics announcement that uh, I am interested in, at least, and that is that sometime next year, uh, so in 2020, mm-hmm. Marvel will be launching a new title called Strange Academy. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, created by Scotty Young and Umberto Ramos. Okay. And, and has Doctor Strange opening a school for magic users in New Orleans. And related to things that we talk about on this podcast, uh, one of the instructors at that school is Brother Voodoo. Okay. Here's my problem with this. Uh-huh. Is everybody in the Marvel Universe kind of a freaking school at some point? Like, yes. I'm expecting, like, Spider Academy and Deadpool Academy next. It's just, like... Well, it's... Spider-Man, Spider-Man taught at... Uh, the, the X-Men school. And at the Avengers school. And he was one of the instructors for the Future Foundation. Yeah, this is true, too. And he ac- actually was a licensed teacher in the state of New York. Yes. Um, so I fully expect Spider-Man to cameo as a substitute teacher in Strange Academy. Oh, god damn it! 
yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it probably will happen, actually, because, you know... It's just... Really, is everybody in the Marvel Universe going to get their own school at some point? Probably. I mean, it's... It's one of those things where... Yeah, it's a little tropey, but it's the sort of thing that... I, I don't know. I always get a kick out of stories like that. It, it's a very sort of old-school approach to a YA type of story. It's going to be like uh, Xavier's School for Get the Youngsters, Avengers Academy, Defenders Detention. <laughs> Although, to be fair, uh, most of these schools don't last very long. Like, Avengers Academy shut down pretty quick. Um as did its predecessor, uh, the initiative, like the the Norman Osborn joint. Well, the no. the thing that came out of Civil War. Oh no, that was the Tony Stark joint. The the one that was at uh, the one that was at Camp Hammond. Yeah. Okay. Like that didn't last. Like you, these things are usually pretty short lived. Um, even Future Foundation isn't what it used to be. No. I'm behind on everything, so I really don't know. Like So. Uh, but I I honestly the the weirdest of those things because it wasn't even really a school was that time that Nick Fury just rounded up a bunch of metahuman kids and turned them into soldiers. Secret Warriors? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, see? I'm young and with it. That was a book that was 10 <laughs> years ago, but I know about it. <laughs> That was Secret Invasion, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the lead up to Secret Invasion because he was tracking down scrolls. Right, right. And hunting them down using child soldiers. Yeah, because, you know, nothing nothing says covert under the radar um, uh, sensitive subject uh, sort of thing. Like, you know... Um, Getting a bunch of hormonal teenagers with social yeah. media accounts involved. Although relevant to what we what we talk about, uh, one of those kids was like the great grandson of the original Ghost Rider, like the, the Western version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The what's his name Slade? Was it Hellfire? Yeah, was yeah. It, he the... he went by Hellfire because he he actually had magic abilities and he had a chain that he could set on fire. Okay. Uh, he also showed up on Agents of Shield and and fought their version of Ghost Rider. Okay, fun. Yep. But uh, but yeah. So Strange Academy is happening. Another uh, comic set at a school for gifted youngsters. This time, magic based, featuring students from Asgard, the Dark Dimension. And more. And it almost certainly won't all go to hell. <laughs> oh, oh, one more adaptation news we forgot to mention. Um, on a Disney Plus side of things, um, at the big Comic-Con down in Brazil this weekend, we did get some look, some, some brief sneak peeks at the upcoming Scarlet Witch series, WandaVision. Yeah, which single image, like one still. Yep. But a very a very provocative still. Yeah, it, she's. It looks very much like a clip from one of my favorite TV shows, The Dick Van Dyke Show. Yep. Um, where you know, the, Wanda and uh, Vision are decked out in very like s- late fifties, early sixties suburban houseware. Yeah, very sort of golden age of television, early sitcom look. And black and white. 
Yes. Which, of course, means no teenager will watch it. <laughs> uh, and also uh, connected to that in an interview... Um, I forget if it was Feige or someone else involved, but someone said that Wanda will finally sort of get the 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 name Scarlet Witch. Okay, that that might be a bad thing. Like some housewife accused her of cheating on her husband. Like you, Scarlet Witch. <laughs> I I figure it means that she's gonna go crazy. Yep. Because when when scarlet witch tends to get invoked in comics it is because she has snapped and done something that broke reality <sighs> oh man things are gonna go so badly for wanda and uh, and uh almost like we're headed toward some sort of multiverse of madness oh oh snap wait are you implying that Disney would set it up where people have to buy their subscription service with its exclusive series in order to understand a film coming out in theaters to a general audience? Oh, you don't have to take my word for it. (laughs) (laughs) Feige said that out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and we'll eat it up with a spoon. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Honestly, I do not expect it to be so essential that you cannot follow a movie without watching the shows i think there will be connections to be appreciated for those of us that watch everything Mm -hmm. but like with the mcu as it exists now my parents skipped over a bunch of them i don't think they ever saw a single captain america movie or iron man movie but they saw all the thors and they saw guardians and they saw infinity war and endgame and they were just fine but captain america is the central arc of the infinity gauntlet yeah like steve rogers story is the central arc yeah and they enjoyed it anyway yeah well damn okay so i i really don't think it's as essential as disney would like for us to believe that's mostly marketing hype to get people to sign up if they haven't already which i don't think is necessary because if you're putting out good stuff which so far they are then you, you don't need to do that. Like, just trust in your content. I suppose. Anyway, guys, this has been it for Hellstrom Watch. And let's trade. Let's go ahead and talk about the comics we're going to be talking about in the show this, this week. We have, first up, Werewolf by Night number 11 from November 1973. After that, we have Tomb of Dracula, number 14, from November 1973. And we'll be wrapping it up with Frankenstein's Monster, number 7, from November 1973. So, a classic trio of monsters there, Lawson. Absolutely. These are kind of our our, uh, our classic monsters here. You've got your werewolf, your vampire, and your, your Frankenstein monster. So... These will be a lot of fun, I think. You got your werewolf. You got your Frank. You got your, your, your Dracula. <laughs> and you know what? You're a nice kid. I'll even throw in some Frankenstein for you. Now, not the doctor. There's monster. Frankenstein's monster right in there for you. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> Next. <laughs> we'll be right back. The Fantastic House is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover each issue spin off. 
guest appearance and cameo of Marvel's First Family. And in 2019, we begin our journey through the neon decade, the 1980s. Join us as we cover... All-time classic runs from John Byrne and Walt Simonson. She-Hulk and Sharon Ventura join the Fantastic Four. The Invisible Girl No More, here comes The Invisible Woman. Spin-off series including Marvel 2-in-1 and The Thing. Marvel's Secret Wars, The Trial of Reed Richards and more. Find us at thefantasticast.com on iTunes and all other podcast services. The Fantasticast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Here at the bank, we've discovered a fascinating pastime. Hangman. Each player puts a word here. Wrong window. Then they try to guess each other's word. L? Nope. Key? No. Endorse it. Q? Uh-uh. R. Right. A? Nope. L? No. N. Wrong bank. If you have a little time to kill, get... Hangman! I won't... Ah. I can't play with these interruptions. Hangman from Milton Bradley. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our first issue for today is Werewolf by Night number 11, cover date November 1973, written by Marv Wolfman, artist Gil Kane, inker and letterer Tom Sutton, colorist Stan Goldberg, and the editor Roy Thomas. Philip Russell is strapped to a nerve impulse charger, being interrogated and tortured by the committee. They suggest that they will forgive the debt he owes them, if he will give them Jack. Philip refuses, and the committee intensifies the torture. Meanwhile, Jack announces to Liza and Buck that he is leaving them to find his own apartment. And so, Jack moves into Colden House, a singles hangout, where he is shown around by Tina Sands. On her way out, Sandy bumps into a Mr. Coker, who snaps at her when she tries to help him pick up books about werewolves that he dropped. Later that night, a a woman is robbed by a thief in need of a fix, but is saved at the last moment by a mysterious vigilante called the Hangman. Shocked that the thief has been killed, the woman faints, and the Hangman carries her off to protect her for the rest of her life. Back at the apartment, Jack realizes the moon is rising and decides to head for the isolation of the beach. On the way out, he is interrupted by the bikini-clad Sam and Clary, but he makes his excuses and arrives at the beach just in time to transform into the werewolf. Unfortunately, he is not alone, and the werewolf can't help but lash out at the five young men still on the beach. The hangman arrives at his lair just as the woman he abducted regains consciousness and sees the other women already chained up in the room. He keeps women to protect them from the evils of the world, asking only that they obey his every wish. The hangman reveals that he was influenced by Saturday morning matinee movies and, driven by that simplistic view of good and evil, he fought in World War II until he was court-martialed for torture. After being released from the stockade, he tried to join the police, but was turned away because of his record. Deciding that all institutions are corrupt and evil, he became the hangman. Meanwhile, on the beach, the werewolf is surrounded by the five men, but attacks before they can take advantage of the situation. Then the police arrive, 
and the werewolf attacks them as well, before retreating into the darkness. In the city, Hangman waits for his next victim, where he spies Buck and Liza, still upset about Jack leaving. Hangman sees the werewolf rushing toward them, and, thinking it a man in a mask, rushes in. Liza tries to stop Hangman from attacking her brother, but he pushes her out of the way. The werewolf, sensing that Liza is good, goes after Hangman to protect her. The fight escalates, with neither gaining the upper hand, when Buck intervenes to try and settle the matter with words. Werewolf decides to run away, hoping the Hangman will follow and leave Liza alone. However, at that moment the police arrive, and in the distraction, Werewolf is snared by the Hangman's noose. Despite his struggles, he is lifted into the air, hanging from a streetlight, and at the Hangman's mercy. So, there's a lot going on in this episode, issue. Yep, yep, whole whole lot going on. Things happen. Yep, for instance, I've, this almost felt like it was a reboot of the title. At, at least a soft one. Um, it seems like they're shaking up the status quo a little bit. And yet, it doesn't last long because we go right back in with Buck and uh, Liza. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I have to say, I appreciate Buck trying to negotiate his way out of a werewolf attack. Yeah, that that's Buck Cohen. Although, for some reason, the writer doesn't seem willing to admit the fact that Buck obviously knows that Jack's a werewolf. Right. I mean, why else, when he says he's leaving at the beginning, would Buck be like, hey man, you do you? It just... So... Okay. The first thing we need to talk about, the fact that we do have a new writer here in the form of Marv Wolfman. Yep, yep, gotta love a pun. Yep, um, they are very, uh, they very much like to tell the fact they now have a werewolf written by a wolfman. Yep. And, you know, the the writing's fine, it's good. I, I don't like some of the characters that have been added, but... Okay, let's talk about the characters. Yeah. Because it seems like an effort, there's an effort here to... Because, because, because we're, we're using that term fairly loosely. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, they do all seem like they are taken from a 1970s sitcom. Yeah, like, Jack Russell basically moved into the set of Three's Company. Yep. Or Bosom Buddies. Yeah. And he he's, like, he's in a house now with a bunch of attractive female co-eds who find him dreamy. Mm-hmm. I guess. And yeah. I, I suppose part of this is a desire to have have him be around young ladies of his own age who aren't his sister. Sure. I mean, they tried that once with the girlfriend who never came up again. Nope, she never did, to the point where I don't remember her name. Me either, but apparently neither does he. Nope. It'd be interesting to see if she ever shows up again. I yeah. probably go look it up if I but cared. I'm, I'm almost thinking that this is some kind of like weird 1970s seduction of the innocent kind of thing where we've got to get this young guy away from Buck Cohen. Oh yeah, because I I know I know we are not the only one to pick up on the fact that like Jack and Buck are a couple, right? I mean, has to be. Has to be. I mean, Buck gives him a ride to the new apartment. Mm-hmm. Which has to be so he can know where he's living and check it out and maybe come by and visit sometime. That's it, exactly. Um, so, 
And you're right. All the characters that show up are just these kind of one-dimensional paper cutouts from a 1970s sitcom. Except mm-hmm. for the dude reading books about the supernatural werewolves. Yep. Which ominous music plays. Um, needless to say, also the only person of color in the issue. Uh, that's nice, at least. He, he's not, you know, a stereotype. That's nice. That's true, but but he's also, like, kind of rude. Uh, just a bit. Just a bit. Like... Um, yeah, go ahead. The girl's not going to be, be be super suspicious you're reading a book on supernatural and werewolf blood. They're just going to think you're a horror fan and move on. Right, right. Just, if, if you're really worried, like, put a copy of Fangoria in there with it. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so... While we're talking about new characters, how about this new villain vigilante we've got running around? You mean the Punisher? I mean the Hangman? I mean, he's sort of a... a they, they, they're not identical, but they're cut from the same cloth. I, I look forward to the cops to start using Hangman decals in their cars. Like, what if Punisher had less of a tragic backstory and was even more entitled and unhinged? And a worse fashion sense. Oh yeah, it's a terrible look. Also, it, it's weird that his primary weapon is a scythe, and yet he's the hangman. Yeah. Like, shouldn't he be the Reaper? Kinda, except we already have a Grim Reaper, or the Avengers villain. Right. right. And he does have a noose, but it's wrapped around his waist as a belt. And so you'd, I didn't realize that's what it was until the very end of the comic when he finally uses it as a weapon. Yeah. It's... It's it's interesting. Also, I really didn't care for the whole I'm this way because I watched movies as a kid. I watched the same damn movies and I didn't turn it into a violent vigilante. Right, right. Certainly not keeping any women chained up in the basement. And also, he talks about these like characters being very black and white. They really weren't, especially if you're like like, like Bogart's heroes. Yeah. A lot of times yeah. Bogart's heroes were criminals in themselves yeah he's sort of conflating noir which has lots of shades of gray with like a western westerns and serials because serials are very much black and white like like and not just in terms of being monochrome yeah like they are very much these are the good guys these are the bad guys white hats black hats well sometimes Uh, literally yeah, yeah, especially if it's a western, but even even if not, but it, he's conflating a few like the the actors he names don't quite match the style of movie he's describing. No. And like, except for except for the Duke and Tom Mix, although arguably the 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 John Wayne movies also are there are shades of gray there too. But, like, you also see, like, in the panel where he's talking about his heroes, you also see, like, Clark Gable there. And I'm yeah. like, Clark Gable did not play black and white heroes. No, not at all. Clark, Clark Gable was, like, the sly uh, love interest kind of guy. And, you know, he would bend the rules all the time in order to get the job done. Mm-hmm. It's uh, almost like... Um, like... Gil Kane just wanted to draw caricatures of some actors that he liked. That that's possible. 
That's extremely possible, in fact. So... So, this guy is basically a war criminal. Oh, yeah, he's he's definitely a war criminal. I mean, we, we you know, we joke around about killing Nazis, but you get the implication he did more than just kill Nazis. Oh, yeah, no, they, uh, he is charged with delighting in cruelty and torture. That's not okay. That's what they're supposed to be fighting against. And then has the audacity to think that he can just go join the police force. I mean... Nowadays he probably could. Well, sure. We're gonna get letters. Probably. <laughs> um, but, anyway. Hangman, terrible fashion sense, terrible justification for his actions. Um, that said, the fight scenes in the issue were pretty good. Yeah. And, I mean, to Hangman's credit, he does not try to use a civilian car with family inside of it as cover in a gunfight. This is true. This is very true. <laughs> the letters he keep also, coming. He also is sane enough to see Buck and Liza and realize that it, they're okay. That, like, Buck is not attacking her. Yeah. But, Jesus Christ, Buck. Okay, if Buck doesn't realize that Jack is the werewolf, Liza being like, oh my god, ca calling the werewolf Jack, um, defending the werewolf, trying to help him, uh, Buck Cohen's a freaking investigative reporter. Right. He better be able to figure this out. Right. Um, also, just as an aside, uh, bottom of page 30, uh, bottom right-hand corner, uh, and the art is a billboard for Crazy Magazine. Oh, yeah. Their attempt at Mad Magazine at the time. Yep, yep. Only 40 cents. Yeah, from what I understand, even that was a bit much for it. Yep, yep. But, um, as I said, I like the art a lot. I think the art's good. Um, still not on the level of Plug. No. But you've got some really good werewolf action during the fights. Yeah, although I did just realize that we get some werewolf up nose shots. Yeah, we do. Because it's Gil Kane. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, there, there's some, some interesting angles chosen in some of these fight scenes. Yeah. Oh, and, well. Yeah. And it's a to-be-continued, so it's going to carry on to the next story. I, I'm assuming that the werewolf does not die from being hung from a streetlight. Well, that's nice. That's good for him. Yeah. yeah. Um, good for, you know, having something to cover on the show. Right, right. Yeah, this book's not over yet. We've got, a, like, in our 50 or so episodes. It better not be, at least. I haven't gotten my Moon Knight yet, so... Oh, yeah, yeah. We're, you're gonna get your Moon Knight. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. But, yeah, it's, uh... Almost no development as far as what the committee is doing or why they want Jack Russell. Um, we just get that little opening bit with Philip. Uh, but it's clear that they and Philip are not in agreement on things. No. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see where they go from there. I, uh, it's interesting that Philip does defend Jack. Mm -hmm. Like, he, he, he won't give up Jack's location. Although I don't imagine it's that hard to find Jack. Right. It's not like he's in hiding or anything. Right, right. He doesn't know they're hunting him, even. No. He he um, he just put in a application for an apartment. That's going right. to put some flags up somewhere. 
Presumably in his own name. Yeah. Also, the committee refers to him as Philip's son, not stepson, which may just be, like... Shorthand. Shorthand, but it just seemed odd to me. Because Jack goes out of his way whenever possible to make clear that they are not blood relations. Yeah. Yeah. So, subplots are developing. Yeah, it, it, it's weird, because I wasn't all that crazy about the main plot, but I do appreciate that they're not forgetting the the ongoing thread. Yeah. Anyway, I do think that does it for that episode of issue of Werewolf by Night. Yep. Uh, it's... The new creative team is fun. It'll be interesting to see how long they stay on the book. Right. Because Marv Wolfman is a fairly big name by this point. He is. He is. So it'd be interesting to see if he actually continues. Wait a minute. On page 16. Mm-hmm. All those matinee icons on there. Is that mm-hmm. Vincent Price? I think in the background it is. The one that's like partially covered. Nice. Alright guys, we'll be right back with Tomb of Dracula, number 14. Hi, I'm John Wilson. And I'm Michael Kaiser. And we're the hosts of the podcast, Make Ours Marvel. You know, here we are in 2018, 10 years into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, can you believe we live in a world where everyone's old Aunt Petunia knows who Iron Man is? It's crazy, right? So... To celebrate, we're on our mission to explore the roots of the Marvel Universe. You know you've thought about it. Some of you may have even done it, and now we're going to do it too. We're diving back into the long boxes of Marvel's history and podcasting our way through the whole universe. All of it. Every superhero issue. And, if I can convince Mike, we'll even do Sergeant Fury. And it's not going to be one issue per episode. That'd take forever. <laughs> it's still going to take forever. But no. We're going to talk about as many comics as we can in an hour. Yep, an hour and, you know, maybe a little change. Every week, Marvel Comics. So it'd be super cool if you came along for the ride. Look for us every Friday at MakeOursMarvel.com. That's MakeOursMarvel.com. Or on iTunes and all the other usual podcasty places. And if you want to read along with us and send us your thoughts, we might even read emails. So until Avengers Infinity War gets a spin-off Warlock and the Infinity Watch TV show... Make ours marvel. Dracula is free to seek new blood. Count Dracula is alive. During the hours of darkness, she must never be left alone. You must do it. Christopher Lee stars in Dracula Has Risen from the Grave Sunday afternoon at 1 on Texas 27, your movie station. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. My name is James Hickson, and our next issue for this episode is Tomb of Dracula number 14. This issue is from November 1973, like all our issues this week. The writer is Marv Wolfman. Artist is Gene Colan. Inker is Tom Palmer. Letterer is John Costanza. Colorist is Tom Palmer. Editor is Roy Thomas. It finally happened. Dracula, Lord of the Vampires, and star of this book, lies state before Frank Drake, Rachel Van Helsing, Quincy Harker, and Blade the Vampire Hunter, having been staked by one of Blade's wooden knives in the last page of last issue. 
However, before they can remove the vampire's head and remove his threat forever, a mob of mesmerized villagers knock down their door. The hypnotized horde whisk away the body of the Count and ensconce with it across the countryside. It is only when the body's brain turns to dust that the spell is broken and a horrified villagers abandon their charge in a ditch. Nearby, a tent preacher, Josiah Dawn, is bemoaning his lack of congregation when he finds a strange power calling to him. Thinking a sign from God, Dawn goes out into the countryside and finds the body of Dracula. Later, Harker and the rest of the Scooby gang are enjoying a rousing game of chess when Drake bursts in with a flyer for a tent church service promising an on-stage resurrection. Figuring this to be their boy Drac, they crash Josiah Dawn's service but are unable to get through the large crowd of congregates in time to stop Dawn from removing the wooden stake from the skeletal remains, and the carnivorous cadaver quickly reconstitutes into the Lord of Vampires. Realizing he has been tricked, Don tries to restrain Dracula with a large cross, but the vampire calls for a storm and a lightning bolt to strike down Don. Leaving the pastor for dead, Dracula transforms into a bat and disappears into the night. So, is it comic book death if we're talking about Dracula? I mean, how many times does he come back to life in the book we've seen? Um, at least twice now? There there may be a, uh, another resurrection in this very episode, maybe. Uh... <laughs> Surely you're not referring to a comic with some sort of shock ending. No, 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 no. Uh, but, I mean, none of us are surprised that Dracula's come back from the dead. It's The book is named Tomb of Dracula. Right, and it's probably one of the longest-running comics of these monster books. Yeah, so we knew that Drac was not a goner for long. Right. I did find it interesting, like, that he was still able to control the villagers, even, like, subconsciously, until his brain turned to dust. I thought that was kind of a nice touch. Yeah, I I liked that. Um... I liked that far more than the team of vampire hunters just giving up and going home to play chess. Right? And they're like, oh, I guess they've defeated Dracula. And... Wait a minute. They didn't defeat Dracula. Dracula's body was stolen. They've got right. to know that he's going to come back. Right. It's just like, okay, I guess we're playing chess now. Right. And as with the werewolf issue having the mostly unconnected subplot of the committee sort of rumbling in the background, here we have more development of whatever is going on with Dr. Sun. Right. They they are testing a body to see if the body is that of a vampire. Surprise! It is. Yep. Um, and I, I do have to say, and this may be... Well, I don't know what this may be, but the the coloring on these Asian characters is very unfortunate. There is definitely some color shorthand for ethnicity here that's, you know... But it's a really unnatural shade. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's unfortunate. 
Yeah, it is. So, I mean, there's not much to talk about in this episode. Like, the priest character is interesting. He is. Um, using sort of the Lord of the Vampires as a means of shocking his congregation back into their faith, I guess. Well, I think, like, the premise is he is going to do an on-stage resurrection. Right. Like, he doesn't necessarily realize that Dracula is a vampire. Right, but then once he does, he seems all in on sort of leaning into his faith as sort of a way to defeat the vampire. Which is surprisingly effective for him. To a point, yes. Especially when, like, the congregation are holding up their crosses as well. Right. And it's like, Um, oh, we're not doing a resurrection, we're slaying a demon. Okay, cool. And and then we got to see Dracula do his uh, Aurora imitation. Right. You know, we should get those two ca- crazy kids together. I think they'll hit it off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it explains so much, doesn't it? It really does. But I find it kind of interesting that, you know, oh, if you're holding a metal crucifix against a vampire, he'll just strike it with a bolt of lightning. Yeah. The, which, that, that bit where the cross sort of explodes from the lightning reminds me of a scene in a little bit later than this uh the 1979 version of dracula the one that starred frank langella okay the sexy one yes yes i i usually shorthand it as uh romance novel dracula (laughs) and i like it a lot i do but it's very much romance novel dracula um but in it when one of the characters pulls a crucifix on dracula instead of being repelled by it uh, the crucifix bursts into flames. Nice. And it, it sort of reminded me of that when, when Dracula called down the lightning to make the cross explode. Although, does that make your vampire too powerful? Um, potentially. Um, there, there's something to be said about the cross only being as powerful as the faith of the person holding it. Mm-hmm. And throughout that conflict, Dracula is calling into question the priest's faith. Mm-hmm. And so that might be why he's able to do that. True. Uh, this is That's actually also a, a thing in Stephen King's Salem's Lot, where the priest in the town is having a crisis of faith, and so the cross that he holds against the vampire is only able to repel it for so long before finally the power fades and, and he's attacked. I really have been meaning to check out Salem's Lot. Great novel. One of my all-time favorite Stephen King books. Okay, because I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Now, Salem's Lot's early. It's like his second novel. Okay. But it's really good, um, especially if you've read Bram Stoker's Dracula, because it borrows not so much story beats, but... Some of the sort of structural ideas. You mean like the diary entries and... A little bit, yeah. Like, it's told mostly in past tense, that sort of thing. Okay. And uh, it's really good. The the 1970s TV version is very good, too. Directed by Toby Hooper. It's It's sort of... It's fairly different from the book, but both are good. Yeah, but I'm interested to see what Toby Hooper does with Stephen King material, so... Yeah, yeah, and even 
even for 70s television, he managed to make it pretty creepy. Okay. Yeah. I have the Blu-ray, if you're ever interested. And there's a... Now, is there's a movie version, too, right? Well, there was a second TV version. Well, so the, the 70s version got released in some markets as a feature. Like, they cut down the miniseries to feature length. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can, watch the TV version, because it's the better version. Um, and then it got remade as a miniseries in the early 2000s with, I think, Rob Lowe played the lead. I like Rob Lowe. Yeah, which the casting was very good, but it, it departed even more from the novel than the previous version did. Mm-hmm. So I, I wasn't as crazy about it. Uh, there's been talk of doing a, a theatrical movie version because of the success of it. Well, I kind of like that people are reappreciating Stephen King now. Like, for for a while there, he was kind of a joke. It's like, oh, look, he's putting out all these books as, like, breakneck speed. But Stephen King's a really talented writer, I think. He is, absolutely. And, uh... My wife doesn't I mean, like him, but, you know. Well, even if you set aside his horror work, which, granted, is most of his output, he has written some really good crime novels, fantasy novels. Um, he wrote a nonfiction book about baseball. Like, he's a very talented, multifaceted writer. Even beyond the the horror stuff, and what we mean when we say that is there's really not a lot of talk about in this Tomb of Dracula issue. <laughs> not much happens. Dracula dies and then he comes back to life. As part of a tent church service, right? Uh, there are some good uh, Gene Colan artwork, but then again, there's always great Gene Colan artwork. Because yeah, although is it just me or does Dracula look weird on the cover? Uh, that's not him. Oh. Uh. Uh, I believe it is... I want to say Gil Kane doing the cover. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. That looks like Gil Kane. But anyway, that I just thought the cover looked weird. It's because it's not it's not Gene Colan. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't like that Dracula. No. But, for instance, like there are parts where blade and the other vampire hunters are trying to break through these crowds or like through my mind control mobs and just like the action of it is really good and the way they're laying out the panels yeah no there's some great uh layouts uh throughout the book especially in those action sequences yeah and and even like, the stuff with, like, Dracula's corpse in the coffin. Like, it, it, it's really cool imagery. Yeah. I like... I but it's also imagery that we'll see again. True. I kind of like the the panel where Dracula's reconstituting. Yeah. Uh, he, he's got kind of a derp face. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because, like, the fangs haven't come in yet. The red eyes aren't there yet. It's just it's it's amusing to me, <laughs> mm-hmm. and probably Dirtula. just me. Oh, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I think when we start calling the main character Turpula, it's time to stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a fun enough issue that I think I'm looking forward. Oh, we're still to the next going. One. Okay. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm just saying it's... I'm looking forward to the next one. Hey, not much of a the, the bottom corner. The bottom corner says next bloodbath. I mean, how can that go wrong? Uh, 
Steven Seagal. Fair. Fair point. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll be right back with the the Frankenstein monster number seven, right after these messages. Are you troubled by stale podcasts in the middle of the night? Do you love films that feature the busting of spooks, specters, or ghosts? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Ghostbusters Resurrection is an RPG audio drama combining tabletop gaming and cinematic paranormal elimination adventures. Call the professionals at nerdyshow.com slash ghostbusters. We're ready to believe you. Get them, boys. Ghosts! Funny guy, watch him scream! The real Ghostbusters eat sold separately. And we're back to Tomb of Ideas with our third and final issue for the episode, The Frankenstein Monster Number 7. Cover date is November 1973. Written by Gary Friedrich. Art by John Bashema. Inks by John Verporten. Letterer is Charlotte Jetter. Colorist is Glennis Ween. And the editor is Roy Thomas. On a warm summer night, a young woman disrobes to take an evening bath in a stream. Slowly, Frankenstein's monster emerges from the water and, on his way to the shore, sees the woman from a distance. However, the monster also sees a hunchback approach the woman and attack her. Musing that he really shouldn't get involved, the monster lifts the hunchback off of her and tosses him into the water. Draco, the hunchback, recovers quickly and fights back against the monster. As they fight, an old woman watches to see who will win. The monster finally gains the upper hand and kills Draco, even as he regrets being driven to kill once again. The woman, fearful that the monster will attack her as well, begins to panic until the old woman, her grandmother, Margarita, emerges and calms her down. The monster accompanies them home, where they are entertained by music and dancing. After eating, Margarita uses her crystal ball to try and help the monster find the last of the Frankensteins. While the monster sleeps soundly, the old woman transforms into a bat and flies away. The monster agrees to stay for one more performance before accompanying Margarita to the last Frankenstein, whom she reveals has actually been dead for years. Before that can happen, Margarita flies to the village and, disguised as a younger woman, feeds on the constable. The other villagers blame the Romani for bringing vampires back to Transylvania, and a mob forms to give chase through the forest. Margarita persuades the monster to push a large boulder onto the mob to stop it, and then they enter the cave previously hidden by the boulder. Inside the cave is a mysterious coffin, which the monster opens revealing a skeleton with a wooden stake through its heart. Rushing past the monster, the old woman pulls the stake from the skeleton, awakening Dracula. Wasting away in Margaritaville. <laughs> you have no idea how, much I've been, how long I've been holding that back. I, I can imagine. <laughs> um, so, Dracula's name is literally on the coffin. And we know the monster can read. Yes. So. Like, it's right there in one of the last panels. Yeah. It is. So the Frankenstein monster is an idiot. 
I mean, he's approaching it from the side that has the name on it, too. Yep. Uh, yep. I guess there's maybe not a lot of illumination. Maybe. Maybe. So, what do you think of this Vecima artwork? It's it's okay. I like it. Um, Sort of a different look for the monster. It is. Like, like overall, the same silhouette. But like the facial features feel a little different, a little more Karloff, I think. Yeah, it's 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 definitely more the Universal Frankenstein. Uh, I kind of saw Margarita being evil before or after she turned into a bat. Before. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. As soon as she was uh, watching with much more than a minor interest in the outcome of the fight. Yep. It was kind of obvious. Yeah. Um, no real indication of what the deal is with Draco, the hunchback. No. He just, he's there and then he's dead. Yep. He's a big strong man who got his head bashed in. Yep. And for good reason, to be honest. He was an attempted rapist, and yeah. if not rapist, at least murderer. Yeah. So. I, I will say. Uh, bad, bad Draco. Bad Draco. Yeah. Tw- yeah. Not not sad to see him leave the book. Twenty points from Slytherin. <laughs> I feel like Margarita's transformation into the bat was sort of lazy. It, it was. I might have liked it, like if she was like the gypsy that transformed Dracula. Back mm-hmm. in, back in uh, Dracula Lives. Right. But I doubt they're going to make that connection. Probably not. But that'd be cool. It, it would be. Um, I, I hope they do something to explain it, because it's kind of weird as it is. Just a wee bit. Now, it feels a lot like some of the old Hammer sequels, where Dracula was constantly being resurrected by like a former minion or, or worshiper of some sort. Didn't he get resurrected once by a dog peeing on him? No, that's Freddy Krueger. That's Freddy Krueger, right. That's Freddy Krueger, right. If you want to talk about lazy resurrections. Yep, those. Though that that's not one of the better sequels. For a minute there, I thought that maybe they were trying to say that, like, that Carmen is and Margarita were the same person. I'm like, but wait a minute, we've seen them up, we've seen them apart from one another. Right, right. Like, one of them is watching while the other is being attacked. Yeah, so, like, I guess the differentiation is one has straight hair, one has curly hair. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they do look just like. Right, right. Which is okay, I guess. They're family. Yeah, um, so I guess the old woman needs Frankenstein's monster because he's strong, and he can lift that boulder. Yeah, that's the only thing I could think of. And, like, she was, tr- she was gonna try to make do with, with, um, Draco, but right. I don't think Draco could lift that. Probably not. I, I would I would not expect that to work. And while we're talking about the boulder, some dudes definitely die when that thing goes down the hill. Yeah, and the monster does not express the regret that he expressed when he killed uh, the hunchback at the beginning. Like, Bushima is definitely drawing some people trapped underneath this boulder and about yep. and about to get rolled right over. Yep. So and not to mention the trees coming down on top of people. Yeah. It's just like Yep. Yeah. 
Fuck you guys. You're gonna die. So, um, I'm noticing a pattern of the monster thinks he has found the last of the Frankensteins, only to get screwed over on the last few pages. Yeah. Although, now that I'm looking at the panel, this cave kind of reminds me of the one from Frankenstein's Castle of Freaks. Okay. Do you know that movie? Um, vaguely. I, I haven't watched it in years, but I, I'm aware of it. Yeah, I watched the cinematic Titanic version, so... Oh, nice. It's it's fresher in my memory. I, I'm getting the same cave vibes. <laughs> so. I can see that. I can see that. It also feels like a very low-budget set, because they go in, and it's basically the one room with the coffin in the middle. Right? Like, it, it's very much a, a 1960s Star Trek cave. So... Yeah, it, it is. Like, the, the walls are made of paper mache. Mm-hmm. Which is fine. We, we appreciate a nice paper mache set. Yep, yep. Um, one thing that I did not summarize, because frankly, it is not relevant, really, is there is a backup story in the issue. Yeah, I didn't even bother reading that thing. It's obviously a reprint. Yeah, no, but, I mean, they... It is advertised as a historic horror in the Frankenstein tradition... Um, it is neither horror nor in the tradition of Frankenstein. It's the guillotine story, right? Yeah, it's the, it's the retelling of the invention of the guillotine. Yeah. Even though um, the trivia page for this on Marvel Phantoms points out that um, this guy did not actually invent the guillotine. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. It's... It's a story. It is. It is. It's. I. It's. I'm more interested in the next issue than this one. This is telling me why we don't get much further on this series. Mm. Like you're trying to sh- put a little bit of a shot of adrenaline in here because we're having the first crossover between our our Marvel monsters, right? Right. Like not just like meeting Spider-Man, but actually like crossing over with one another. Right, like we're setting up for a full-on monster mash. <laughs> Sorry, but yeah, and it's fine. But this that's all this issue is. It's set up. Yeah. Well, it, it's the problem of any issue where the cover advertises the shock ending. It tells you there's not a damn thing going on between it and the shock ending. Well, because... It's a cover that's advertising for the next issue already. Yep. That's exactly what's going on here. And no, sell me this issue, not the next one. Yep. It's it's a thing that's here, and you know, it's not terrible. I, I'm sure if I weren't comparing it to other things, I would like it just fine. It's weirdly comparable to both of the other comics we read for this episode. Yes. Because it's... It's treading water in a way that's sort of like the Dracula issue. And it's also just not not all that interesting, like the werewolf issue. Okay. But but if I if I had to pick, I'd say this one falls right in the middle. Okay, so if we're gonna argue which is the better issue in this issue, what's the better issue? Oh Dracula, by far. I would actually argue that Werewolf by Night caught my interest more. Really? Really? Even with even with the weirdo singles 
supporting cast. I mean, yes, it's cringeworthy, but at the same time, I'm like, where the hell are we going with this? I mean, that's that's fair. That's fair. I, I guess I was more taken with the consistency of the Dracula issue than the the weird soft reboot of Werewolf. But I, I can see that. I can see where you. I can see where someone would be drawn to the Werewolf issue. And that may be the problem that I have with the Dracula thing, is, yes, it's consistently great. The point where, yes, I always know that the Dracula issue is going to be competent. Yeah, like, uh, the least good Dracula issue we're going to get at this point is still going to be better than most things. And we've talked about this before, where it's like, I'm invested in the soap opera of the Russells at this point. Sure, absolutely. And and I am, I'm encouraged at least, that despite the, the change in setting for Jack, that Buck and his sister are still, apparently, at least for now, part of the story. Right, like, for a moment there I thought like, oh wait, are they just gone now? Right. Like, I'm like, is this just like a reboot of the title right like two pages in? Holy right. crap. And they didn't go that far, I don't think. At least not yet, so... No. But but either way, I, I think this issue falls sort of short of that. I don't know. It's there, There's not a lot of development for anyone. We don't learn anything new about the monster. He doesn't learn anything new about his quest. The only thing that happens is on the last page. Yeah. Dracula shows up. Which, as this is not the more celebrated crossover between our monsters the werewolf by night versus dracula thing it'll be interesting to see where they go with this right and i mean surely it has to end with him getting staked again yeah because again we know that he gets staked a few times between now and well between 1898 1896 Uh, something like that and the modern day right it's going to be a, f- a fairly common thing for him. He's, he's going to wake up in the morning, trip on the bathroom mat, and get staked, and boom, we don't see him again for another decade. Right, right. I, I feel like that's every other story in Dracula Lives. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> like, coming up with reasons for why Dracula is still alive in this era. <laughs> oh, man. So... Yeah, I mean, I guess what we're get what we're sort of landing on is that while these are three enjoyable titles, none of these issues reflect the best of what we've seen from any of them. No, it's it's competent. Like Bashima is always going to be competent. He draws women very well, and at the same token, Gary Friedrich is competent. Like he's he's definitely not my favorite Marvel writer, but he gets the job done. Right. I, I'm kind of interested in seeing Gary Friedrich leaving the books and seeing where they go with some of his characters like Ghost Rider with someone else writing him. Right. Um, I will say Bashima's Dracula in that last panel is better than Kane's, but not as good as Colin's. Well, no. No one's going to be as good as Colin's Dracula, but he's... A close facsimile. Yeah. He, he, he's fine. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I think that does it for Frankenstein's Monster. We'll be right back with some listener feedback right after this message. My 
My name is Michael Bailey, and I am still kind of a bad geek. Not a fan of anime, never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I ventured a little further into the worlds of Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even managed to watch a little Doctor Who. I've also managed to not watch a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic, Comic books. books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. Back in 2007, I started a podcast called Views from the Long Box to deal with this borderline personality disorder. Every week or so, I pick a particular comic or issue or character or whatever to talk about them and then... Well, I, I talk about them. It's kind of what a podcast is. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I'm joined by my semi-regular co-host, the Irredeemable Shag, or Thomas DJ, and the permanent semi-regular co-host, Andrew Leyland, and sometimes another friend from the podcasting and comic book world stops by to chat. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, where you can find old episodes and show notes, and links to my other internet endeavors. You can also find the show on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter under the handle at Bailey's Podcasts. Views from the Long Box, a podcast about comic books or a desperate cry for help. You decide every Tuesday or so at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. I'm Vincent Price. As your host on Mystery, it's my job to fan the fires of your imagination with tales of gloom and doom. Right now, I have another chilling tale for you. A tale of danger and mystery that's all the more frightening because it's absolutely true. You see, an old friend one that you care about deeply is in grave danger. Your friend calls out. Next to your hand is the single instrument capable of effecting your friend's escape from the dark curse of indifference. You reach out, you take the instrument in hand, and trembling with anticipation, you dial the number. Somewhere a phone rings. Then a reassuring voice answers, speaking the words you were desperate to hear. This is your public television station. May I take your pledge? The tension snaps. Almost giddy with relief, you pledge 50, 75, no, $100. And for the first time in ages, you sleep in peace, knowing that everything was done that could be done to save a valued friend. The only mystery is, what took you so long to come to the rescue? Welcome back, Tomb Believers, and we are pleased as punch to say we've got some listener mail. Yay! Yay, listener mail. And of course, we've got, a, got it from a few people, um, mostly from our Twitter. And our first one comes from uh, Chad Jernigan. Jernigan? Yeah. yeah, Chad Jernigan. I think, yeah. 
um, at Angled Time on Twitter. Right. And he is making some speculation about the uh, Moon Knight, Werewolf by Night possible connection in the MCU Disney Plus series we were talking about earlier, where he makes some casting suggestions for um, Jack Russell and his gang. Yeah. Uh, We have... Uh, Jack Russell, we have uh, suggested a actor, Taron Egerton. Mm-hmm. I, I feel I should know him from something. Uh, Kingsman, Secret Service, and Golden Circle. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. They'll never get Well, Shaq. They'll never get him. <laughs> uh, uh, he also played Elton John in Rocketman. Yeah, I, knew t- I, fi- I thought that was him. And also... We have suggested for Liza Russell, Kristen Bell, of Veronica Mars and Frozen fame. Right, uh, right. And, oh, and um, The Good Place, obviously. Right. All shows I love. I, I actually adore... For, former, formerly of Heroes. Oh, yeah, I remember when she was on Heroes. Yeah. She was the speedster. No, she was electric. Was she electric? You're right, she was electric. Woogie, woogie, woogie. You are correct. Yes, uh, yes. And, um... Shows how long it's been since I watched that show. Well, you kind of had to stop watching after that point anyway, so. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, she was on Heroes. She's just in a ton of stuff. Yeah, it'll never get her. Um, no. I mean, yes, there is a role for Kristen Bell in the Marvel Universe, but it's not as Liza Russell. Mm-hmm. They need something bigger for her. Probably so. For one thing, she's a huge cash getter for Disney. Absolutely, yeah. Like she has her own Disney Plus series already. Right. Um, that's sh- that's that's just her. Like, yeah, <laughs> doing theatery things. Yeah, encore. Which my wife got pissed about because she's like, "Have these people never heard of community theater?" Right. Like you didn't have to stop performing when you graduated from high school. Exactly. It's like there is a community theater somewhere that will let you do something. Right. Now, not every community has them. Like, the the opportunities are scarce in smaller areas, smaller communities, but... We are lucky enough to have a fairly thriving community theater here in our hometown. Yes. Yes, we are. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have <laughs> Buck Cohen. Uh, Chad's suggestion is Mr. Hugh Jackman. Yeah, they'll never get him. No, 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 no. Um, and if they do get him, they're going to make him be Wolverine again. Yeah, of course. Um, Hugh Jackman, best known for his role in Kate and Leopold. Uh, <laughs> I-, I was going to say uh, Boy from Oz. <laughs> I am not the boy next door. Man, i got to listen to that now. Thanks a lot. Um, soon, soon to be appearing on stage in The Music Man. Of course he is. Because he was born for that role. Yes, he was. <laughs> I mean, even more than even like honestly, more so that than Wolverine. Like this is like his second time playing that role, isn't it? Um, first time that I know of, but he may have done it before. I swear, I've seen him do Music Man before. I know he's done songs from. Okay, it before. that might be it. Because he did like that concert tour not that long ago. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I mean, come on now. It's Hugh Jackman. They're not going to get him for Buck Cohen. I mean, I love Buck Cohen, don't get me wrong. But they're not going to get Hugh Jackman. There's talk about them getting him back for Wolverine or possibly for Doctor Doom. 
Yeah, I could see either of those. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd rather see a new actor play Wolverine just because, with the exception of Deadpool, I want some separation there. I would actually prefer if they don't bring in Wolverine for a while. Well, yeah, no, I, I would love for them to start with the Classic Five. Oh, that's definitely not happening. Well, no, it's not, because they, they want characters that people like. But I, I love the, the original Five all in their own way. Sure. I, I mean, you know that Beast is one of my faves. Yes. And that Angel is one of my faves. Yes. But they want Storm, they want Nightcrawler. Like, there there are certain characters. Like, the original five are pretty white bread. Yeah. Although I was thinking about the other day, I can easily imagine a situation where if they were going to, if they were going to do add some diversity to the original five, Cyclops could easily be a black guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I, I kind of like Gene as, like, the redhead. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just because, you know, uh, me and redheads. But, um... It's... <sighs> like, like it doesn't really matter what race Cyclops or Iceman or even Angel are. No. Like, you could, you could do whatever you want with them in terms of casting, and it's fine. Yeah. Uh, Bobby's Jewish. Oh, that's right. He is. So yeah, they you've got some diversity there. Um, I wonder if they would retain the uh, the thing one, where one of the versions of Iceman was gay. It's possible. No, no reason. It got confusing. I, I I lost track of which Iceman it was because for a while there were two of him. It's the younger one. That's right. It is. It's the younger one where because Gene read his mind and outed him. <sighs> doesn't really make sense though because i guess because he is really an alternate reality bobby right i mean he's supposedly he 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 is functionally a past version a younger version of bobby but really he is an alternate reality version of bobby right because as soon as the time travel happened it created a, a break in the time stream not even that like in order to not affect the timeline, I think Beast went, like, the extra mile and just, like, I went back in time and an alternate dimension. Okay. Like... Fair enough. Like, in order to not break the timeline. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Xbox books are confusing. They are very confusing. Have you been reading any of the new stuff since they relaunched? Mm, by new stuff, do you mean the stuff that Chris Claremont wrote? <laughs> try try jonathan hickman uh, i wonder if we're related <laughs> um uh no i haven't yeah it's it's complicated uh there's there's charts and and graphs and and pictograms and infographics because you know we all love to have a chart to understand our comic books and and there's like oh there, there's a mutant language now that you have to, like, sometimes try to translate? <laughs> I'm sure folks are having fun with it, because honestly that does sound fun. Um, my my current favorite of the X-Books, though, is Marauders, where Kitty Pride leads a group of basically, like, mutant pirates. Arr. Like swashbuckling. Like swashbuckling pirates? Yeah. No, I'm serious. No, I, I know you're serious, and that's fine. She still has the dragon, right? I believe so. Um, although, now there's another dragon 
in the Excalibur book. Okay, sure, why not? Uh, because uh, Jubilee's adopted son Shogo. Doesn't she, um, does, he turn? Doesn't she have an actual son? Pretty sure he's adopted. No, she, maybe he's not. she was pregnant at one point. Oh, and a vampire. Yes, yes, I remember the vampire part. Um, no, Shogo was adopted. Okay, then what happened to the part where she's pregnant? I I don't know. I really don't. Um, but. Anyway, Shogo turned into a dragon. Okay. At least I'm pretty sure that's what happened. I've not been following Excalibur all that closely, um, although I do appreciate that Betsy Braddock is the new Captain Britain. But where's Brian? Who cares? Hey. (laughs) Hey. He was good in Captain Britain in M13. He was. That That is a wonderful book. See? I've read current books. Again, ten years ago, but I recur. I was going to say, like, <laughs> I think that was right after I graduated from college. I'm not sure my daughter was born yet. <laughs> um, there may be a correlation between those two. <laughs> but yeah, no. Long story short, uh, if if Marvel Studios gets Hugh Jackman for anything, it's probably not going to be to play an investigative reporter on a show with a werewolf. Not that we don't love Buck Cohen, because... Not at all. He, uh, that is going to be... He's deserving of a fine performance. That is going to be some actor's dream role. Mm-hmm. It is. It just is. But I don't think it's Hugh Jackman. Right. So... Oh, um, to, to answer your question, it looks like Brian Braddock is working for a... UK intelligence agency called RCX. Okay. Um, or something like that. And uh, during that time, Betsy Braddock becomes Captain Britain. Okay. See, I thought you were going to answer my question about Jubilee. Maybe. Oh, no, that's old. That's that's an old one. That was the last time she became Captain Britain. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Who knows? It's complicated. It, it's all Hickman, so it's complicated. It's the X-Books. Yeah. If if only there was a podcast where a couple of people could explain the X-Men. I know, right? Yeah. It just Somebody should get on that. They really should. Thank you, Chad, for uh getting to us with those suggestions. I, I think uh I enjoy fan casting, so that's something that, that I get a kick out of. Um and I, I do think all of the actors that he listed would definitely nail those roles. I'm just not sure that, that Disney's gonna get them for what would have to be minor parts in a TV project. Right. It's there. It's great casting. It's just, I think all those are a little bit bigger names than that. Although, you know, you never know. We might be getting Shia LaBeouf for Moon Knight. So that's true. That's true. Although he's been sort of out of the picture for a while. Has he? I haven't up to, I am not up to date at all. Yeah, he, he had some personal issues, went into rehab. Like, he's not been working a whole lot. Well, he did that. He just put out a movie where he plays his own dad. Yeah, yeah, the the autobiographical thing, which is supposed to be really good. Yeah, Peanut Butter Eagle? Honey Boy, I think. Peanut Butter Falcon. Huh? 
No, wait, is that something else I'm thinking of? Yeah. No, it's Peanut Butter Falcon. Or is that a different movie he's in? That's got to be different, because the one where he plays his own dad is Honey Boy. Okay. Uh, Peanut Butter Falcon, Zack runs away from his care home to make a, his dream of becoming a wrestler come true. Yeah, that is that is a different thing. Okay. I'm getting my Shia LaBeouf things mixed up. But he's clearly like ramping up the work again if he has sort of two movies basically back to back. Yeah. Which Cause that one was that one got a limited release this past August. I think Honey Boy is just sort of starting to hit theaters now. Yeah, I, b- I better be careful. He if he ever finds out I mixed up his movies, he'd be really He's right behind me, isn't he? <laughs> so scared <laughs> Trey mm-hmm. tell the listeners what we're talking about next time well but well I will but first we do have some fan art oh yeah sorry okay so Mr. LaBeouf if you'll give us just a few minutes I think he nodded <laughs> <laughs> um this is from another listener, uh, Gerald, uh, at Jer underscore Downing. Um, and if you're a regular listener, you know that last time we asked for your best interpretations of a mild-mannered man-thing who would adventure into the mundane. Um, because we just loved the idea of man-thing going around in, like, a suit and a little fedora and glasses. Like Clark Kent style. Yep. And uh, Gerald was kind enough to Photoshop together some images of the Man-Thing working at a newspaper. Yeah, it's wearing the Clark Kent uh, glasses and fedora and suit. It's 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 fun stuff. It, it's very cute, uh, and we appreciate that. Uh, and having visual interpretations of it just makes me laugh at the idea even more. Yep. <laughs> I love the one of him just reading the paper. Yep. Yep. (laughs) So thank you, Gerald. Thank you for uh, amusing me with those images. Anyway, let's talk about the the books we're going to cover next time. Yeah, um, which is going to take us up to basically right before Christmas. Next time on the show, we're going to be talking about Adventures in the Fear, number 19, and Ghost Rider, number 3. Yep, so little bit of a lighter episode than usual, um, but we've got two of our heavy hitters, Man-Thing and Ghost Rider. Right. And it, it should be a fun read. We're, we're still in the middle of that Steve Gerber Man, uh, Man-Thing saga in fear. Right. And, right. And they keep promising more with that supporting cast, so maybe this will be the issue that does it. Right. And, you know, Ghost Rider's coming strong after that Marvel team-up issue, so... It'll be interesting to see if anything happens in his own damn book. Right, right. That that would be nice. Anyway, Tomb Believer, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tumblers Excelsior! <laughs>